Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show. On top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so that you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Evolve Move Play podcast. This week, my guest is Oliver Thorpe. Oliver is a very talented parkour athlete from Denmark, um, originally from Australia, as we'll find out in the podcast. Um, he is amazing, really specifically right now in the development of the ascent game in parkour. That is climbing rapidly up buildings. And he's really been doing some incredible work in that area. So I've been really enjoying his work. He's also has a history of doing lots of amazing kind of different areas of movement, which we'll talk about in the podcast. Um, but I, I ended up reaching out to him and, and trying to schedule a podcast because he and Ty's vid um, wrote a blog article in, in response to some of the claims of Theo Tanchemek, um in some of his video breakdowns of people's movement. And I thought it was a really cool example of kind of scientific thinking applied to parkour. So I thought it'd be fun to talk to Oliver about his training and his philosophy and kind of some of the ways that he thinks about movement. So that's basically what we did. And uh, Oliver is a really fun guy to talk to, really amazing mover. So um, if you're interested in the higher level, kind of what it looks like to train at the highest levels of parkour, how people develop new and interesting areas within our, uh, our approach and kind of, you know, what the philosophies within what, what parkour athletes are thinking about philosophically, you're going to enjoy this one. So without further ado, my conversation with Oliver Thorpe. So Oliver, this is the first time we've ever got to meet, but um, I think we've run into the same circles and probably run into each other's names quite a few times over the years. Yes, definitely. I, I feel like this, when I was in Denver, uh, in Denmark, it was like, uh, we almost were going to meet up or something, but didn't happen. You were, weren't around or injured or something the last couple of times I was over there. Yeah, I can't remember. I remember you messaging me, um, asking if I wanted to jump around on some trees, but, uh, but I think I was, yeah, either busy or, or, uh, Injured. Have you ever been out to those trees yet? The Concordia. No, I haven't actually been out to them yet. Uh, so that's uh, still still on my list for doing at some stage. They're they're amazing. You got to check them out. They're so rad. So, um, tell me a little bit about how how long have you been doing parkour? I have been doing parkour for a little bit over fifteen years now. Okay, so you started twenty sixteen or two thousand six? Sorry. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, started February 2006. Okay, cool. I started February of 2005. Nice. And Almost the same uh, time. Yeah, close enough. <laughs> yeah. Once you're in the, over a decade, it's kind of just, you're just an old guy in the sport. Yeah, exactly. So how, uh, how old were you when you started? 
I was uh, 16. 16. Uh, wait, no, turning, turning 16 that year. So I was uh, 15 when I started. And did you find the community right away? Uh, yeah, yeah. I started uh, training with, with other people. Um, I, one of my friends uh, came to me at school one day and he was like, holy shit, you have to see this uh, YouTube video when you get back home. Um, yeah. And then I yeah, went back home, saw it, and I was like, okay, let's do it. Uh, and we found some people that were, were training in the, in the city and asked if we could join up to one of the jams. I recently had Yepi Skogo on the podcast. <clears throat> Did you train? Ah, yeah. As well? Oh, I mean, I actually started training in Australia. Oh, okay. There we go. That makes sense. Yeah. So uh, I, I did. Uh, I did train with him a bit um, when I moved, sort of uh, when I moved back to Denmark. But uh, yeah, not not until after a while. So your accent's a little bit strange. So you grew up partially in Denmark, partially in Australia. Is that how it went? I, I grew up. Uh, I grew up in Australia pretty much uh completely but i uh i think sort of i've never had the sort of the most australian accent and then after living 11 years back in denmark um i kind of um meld my accent a little bit i think because just when i moved back people like what are you saying what so i just kind of started speaking um more neutral i guess more. It's, uh, it, but it's kind of there's something Danish about your accent, which was surprising. Yeah, in the interviews because your your la your name sounds English, right? Or or Anglo, right? All yep. Are you? Yeah, exactly. Really? Or are you? No, like, how did you end up? Uh, my dad's Australian. Dad's Australian. Your mom? Yeah. Name? So I still have. Yeah, exactly. Do so you started? Uh, where were you in uh, Australia when you started training? Uh, in Brisbane. Brisbane. Okay. Went to primary school and high school there. Who are the kind of community in Brisbane, in the Brisbane area? Sorry, what? Who are the community in Bri in the Brisbane area? I don't know that area as well. Um, no one who's actually still like training uh, like consistently anymore. Actually, uh, or there's there's still a few guys who who train, but um, but they're like they don't really post uh, on the internet or anything. Um, so. Uh, but like right now it's, uh, the Pawson twins, um, yeah. who you might've heard of. Um, but they, uh, they didn't start training until pretty much like just after I left. Okay. Yeah. Brisbane has amazing trees. I want to go visit as well. Speaking of amazing trees. Are you there, Oliver? It froze on me. Maybe you just completely cut out for me. Yeah. Same. Oh, sorry. Okay. I was saying that, uh, that Brisbane actually has really great trees as well. Um, I look forward to getting the chance to go there and explore. Oh yeah, yeah. Brisbane has some absolutely crazy trees. I remember playing around in them uh, when I was a kid, and also after I started training parkour. Yeah. So did you? Have How any... would you rate them compared to uh, to the ones in Denmark? Well, I mean, I would say generally that Australia has better trees than Denmark. Denmark's quite yeah. surprising, though. But the, the one tree in Deerhaven is, I think, mm -hmm. my favorite tree in the world. The contorted beech oh. grove that uh, Henrik Rossell found, like. Get Sander to take you out there. It's freaking amazing. Okay. Wow. Yeah. It's, yeah. Okay. So I might, might do that one day. Between huge structures there, you could do a descent and a sense up these trees. If you like, you know, there's. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like Tic Tac fried lines. Yeah. It's, a, it's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. But yeah, there are some cool trees in Denmark. But yeah, definitely um, the the big Morton Bay fig and the cotton, uh, the cotton trees that they have down in Australia are amazing as well absolutely absurd stuff yeah so did you have a sport background before parkour um i mean i, I kind of uh i tried a little bit of uh of some different things so i wasn't uh wasn't sort of very i wasn't super sporty um but like i played 
I played soccer a little bit or football for those that uh, that won that. Uh, so I did that for a bit, and then I play. I went to uh, I did diving, like springboard diving, um, for for a couple of years. No, I think for five years actually, um, kind of on and off. Uh, and then I played the Australian football for a few years as well. So um, sort of a random tangent, but try, can you describe Australian rules football to the audience? Because I think it's actually a fascinating game. Nobody knows about it outside of Australia. It, it is a great game. I think, I think uh, a sort of very uh, apt in some ways description uh, that, I've, that I've heard lots of people say is it's kind of like uh, American football without protective gear. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which is, I mean, it's completely different, but um, I, I, I don't really know how to sort of give a quick description of it. I think you'd have to, like, I mean, maybe you can do something better, but uh, like you can have a look on, on YouTube, but it's, it's, I think it's a very confusing game if you don't know the rules. So how many players per side are there? Um, oh, I think there's 18. 18. So it's, it's I, I can actually, I can never remember, but there's a lot. Yeah, it's, it's way more than football or soccer american football that that adds to the chaotic feel of it how big is the the field it seems like the field's also really big uh, i think it's like 180 meters long um White. sorry to sorry to all australians if i'm absolutely butchering this but <laughs> so yeah so it's like twice the size of of a of a american football field or a soccer field yeah which is pretty crazy and then then there's there's an aerial aspect to the game that you don't have in rugby, but it, that's from kicking. Like you run and kick the ball, right? Yeah, exactly. It's uh, there's um, like there's there's not really anything that's sort of like there's no offside. Um, so pretty much the whole game, there's players like from both teams all over the whole field, and then uh, well, I guess yeah, the idea is you have uh, a ball which looks quite a bit like a uh, a rugby, um, but it's just like a little bit a little bit more rounded. Uh, and the idea is you sort of have to get it from uh, or get it down to the end of the field and then kick it through some uh, like some high goalposts. Uh, and yeah, if, if you kick the ball to one of your teammates and it goes over 15 meters and they catch it, then uh, the game stops and they get to like uh, take a few steps back and then and then start over by either kicking it uh, to someone else or passing the ball along um, to someone. Crazy game. There's also... One of the things about Aussie rules football is really crazy is how they lift people into the air to receive the ball. Yeah. People want to look up the highlights of that. It's a very strange thing that I've never seen in any other football type game. Yeah, it's a really cool game, I think. A lot of crazy game for sure. So, so I think if, if you ever go to Australia, go watch a game live, even if you don't know any of the rules, it's very entertaining. Yeah, for sure. So um, that was just a random tangent, just because I think it's an interesting game. But um, so your background, so you had a little bit of a uh, sport background, but not a lot. Did you Is that on your end? Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe. Uh, I'll just close the door here. Maybe there's uh, people <clears throat> being noisy outside. Some. Uh, there we go. Okay. So you, um, did you, did you find that you took to parkour pretty quickly? Was it relatively easy for you to acquire the skills or? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty. I'd, I'd say, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the sort of the very first day that I went to a parkour jam, um, like the people there asked me, like they're like, "Hey," and it's like, "Welcome." It's like, like what what can you do? Uh, and I think the very first thing I did was a uh, a cat pass over a rail. Okay. Um, which I think for most people that have tried like parkour, that's maybe sort of not 
not one of the first things that uh, that you do. Yeah, took me about six months to learn how to do Kong vaults without clicking. <laughs> so I think that's a more typical progression. So, so I, one of the things that's interesting to me is you've kind of been at the forefront of a few different trends in uh, in parkour. It seems like. Um, but your style has changed quite a bit over the years. So I remember, you know, maybe 10 years ago, you were really like Kongs were your thing, cat passes were your thing. You did really big diving cat passes. I was watching a video of you, you're doing a cast up to double Kong down, I think, where you were going mm. from a, probably like what, maybe eight foot high bar casting up, Konging, and then doing a second Kong down on a wall that was maybe four feet lower. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Maybe even a little bit more, <laughs> but. <laughs> so, and then you also, it seems like got pretty into the bar swinging skills and kind of developed some pretty, uh, you know, pretty unique style within that realm. But then more recently, like all of your footage is, is basically, um, is the ascent game, right? Where you've gotten. Pretty, pretty much, yeah. So tell me a little bit about how you've, you've cultivated your style and what's, what's brought you into specific um, kind of passion projects within. within, within. Um, I think, I think for me, it's, it's been sort of very, um, I guess like it's been very motivation driven. Um, so I've pretty much just done what I thought was uh, fun and interesting at the time. Um, and I've always done like quite a bit of different stuff. Like, I mean, I still, I still do quite a lot of uh, cat passes and that sort of thing. Um, but I think also uh, I haven't been traveling that much lately. So there's not really that sort of many interesting new ones that we find around Copenhagen. So that could be one of the reasons why I don't post that sort of stuff uh, anymore. Um, but, but I think uh, like one of the things that's definitely changed lately is the ascent descent uh, type, uh, type stuff that I've been doing. And I, th I think sort of one of the things that's really pushed me that way is, is seeing, uh, seeing other people doing it as well, but also the fact that I think about, um, I can never remember exactly that. I think it's like five or six years. Well, it's about like six or seven years ago, I had got an ankle injury. Um, and then I started climbing a lot because I couldn't jump that much anymore. So I started, uh, yeah, indoor bouldering mainly, um, and, and did that like a lot for, for about a year, year and a half, um, until I finally figured out, uh, my ankle and I ended up getting surgery and, and got a ligament reconstructed. And then after that, I started jumping a lot more, but, but I've been climbing for long enough that I just really, really love climbing. So I, I kept doing both parkour and climbing sort of alongside each other and and then sort of like lately now uh i just i've, I've had some friends who also enjoyed doing ascent stuff and it's, it's kind of just worked out that that's what we've been focusing on uh lately um like i i actually really this isn't completely true but like most of the time i i really don't like training alone uh so i do a lot of the stuff that sort of the other people around me do. And obviously they probably get uh, influenced by me as well, what I want to do. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think it's just sort of after seeing uh, like some of my friends and also uh, Shane from England doing lots of ascents. I've just like my, I guess my eyes have been open to, to lots of different uh, buildings and, and that sort of thing around, around Copenhagen and also the other cities in Denmark. So I've just really been enjoying sort of being able to combine my parkour and my climbing 
yeah. into something that that I find really interesting and and technical and and just a new challenge, which is I think one of the things that that drive my physical practice. <laughs> Did you uh, pay attention to Tom Coppola as he was developing? his side of the same game, I kind of feel like Tom was really the first one who was really pitching with stuff in the parkour community, hybridizing bouldering with, with, um, with parkour. That's true. I, yeah, I uh, just forgot about Tom there. Yeah. I, uh, I trained with him um, the one time I've been to the U S as well. And yeah, uh, we had a really nice time and yeah, I've definitely also been inspired by him uh, watching some of his stuff. He's a really, really cool guy and a very nice guy as well. So yeah, I love Tom. Just across the border from me, right? So he's yeah. like Uber. Um, and it, it's just been interesting to me to see, I think it's interesting how these kind of trends come and go within the parkour community. Like I remember when um when Blaine, Chris Rowett started doing Kong Precisions. And like I don't mm-hmm. I mean, I guess like Stefan Vigrou had been doing that and like really building that up um in the French community before Blaine got into it. Um, and I, I imagine maybe Blaine got it from him, but as far as like the rest of the community that I was aware of, like nobody had really explored that until Chris started putting out his videos. And I was like, everyone was doing that, right? It was like everywhere. Yeah, could be. I think, I think we were a little bit isolated in Australia and we weren't really paying that much attention or at least sort of, uh, my group of friends weren't really paying that much attention to what was happening in the rest of the world. So we were kind of just doing our own thing. Um, and I mean, maybe it was just me that was completely oblivious, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, like, I think, I think we've been doing like, at least from since when I started, uh, we've been doing Kong precisions, um, the whole time. So maybe that was before my time actually, sort of in the year between when, uh, when yeah. I started and you started. You right around when you started probably was when Wayne came out. Yeah. So it might've trickled into awareness around that time. So I've seen that happen and I'll, you know, I, I remember when um, when everyone was doing angel drops and devil drops, mm-hmm. and then I feel like nobody does those anymore. And now everyone does like worm gainers or, or cast gainers or worm worm backs and cast backs. And uh, yeah, I just pretty much that's actually yeah, it's a kind of a funny thing that like because as you said, like no one does angel drops or devil drops anymore. Yeah, which is weird. Just, yeah. Angel drops are really aesthetic looking, mm. and you don't have to like go down the wall and get into a new position. <laughs> Like I find no. like, like worm uh, worm casts or worm backs like really ugly. Like you see a guy do a cat leap and you expect to climb up and then he's like, uh, slows down, stops at the bottom of the wall, does this funky looking movement. I don't know. Just a personal. Yeah, no, I actually really like them. Uh, but only if you can kind of get the transition from, uh, from like an arm jump to the, to the cast back uh, to, to be fast. Otherwise it just looks like, why, why are you doing that? <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so then, you know, the, the ascent and descents has been kind of the big thing since I'm trying to remember when it really happened. Cause it was like Dylan Baker put out his video, which really kind of busted up and the descent idea. And at the same time, Tom put out his video on ascent, uh, which really, mm-hmm. you know, showcased a, a much higher technical level in climbing than had ever been seen in the parkour community. And now I see mm-hmm. like Shane parkour is doing incredible things. You're doing amazing things. Momo, who I'm guessing is your training partner. 
Um, sometimes uh, he lives in uh, in a different city than I do in, in Copenhagen. But like we we try and sort of go uh, forwards and backwards like once every month ish. But yeah, is there anyone else who you're paying attention to who's really pushing the the limits in that side or the the game? Ah. Uh... I'm, I don't know. I'm actually uh, really bad at uh, at social media. <laughs> like I, um, I I don't watch that much of it, um, and and I also have a terrible memory. So uh, the combination of that, I, I not to got to ask. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. And uh, sorry to everyone uh, for forgetting you, but um, yeah, I need a little bit of time to think about that. Are you hearing that loud beep when it happens? Me? No. Where is that coming from? Oh, is it like, uh, is it still going? No. Um, I'm just trying to figure out what, what that is. It's unpleasant. I mean, it could be on my end, but I can't hear anything with the headphones in. I just tried taking one out, but I can't hear anything now. Let me see. My camera just died. I'm going to pause for a second. Sorry about that. Yeah, no problem. Okay. So, um, these, these, these climbing challenges that you're doing, you're moving quite fast and you're getting pretty high off the ground. How do you mentally prepare? Like how, what goes into the process of, of taking on one of these challenges and you know, what are you doing to sort of make sure that you're maintaining the safety that you're doing these, these other challenges? Um, I think uh, if we start with the, the sort of mental part, um, I have uh, an interesting... Um, I guess, uh, sort of relationship with, uh, with fear and heights. Um, maybe it's a normal thing, but, uh, I'm not sure. So like the first time, I mean, we just, we usually, I start just by climbing up sort of very slowly to sort of, uh, like may, maybe sometimes climbing up the whole, um, the whole ascent or other times just kind of climbing up in parts. So I'll climb up and I'll be like, Oh shit, now I'm pretty high. This is scary. <laughs> and I'll climb down again. I'll be like, all right, cool. Wait a few minutes, then sort of climb up again. I'm like, okay, feels better being here. Try uh, try sort of the next move and then be like, oh, that was pretty scary. I'm going to climb down again. Um, and, then, and then I sometimes do that like, I don't know, sort of somewhere between five to ten times before I get uh, get up to the top. Um, and then sort of once I've, once I've done it, it, it feels usually quite, uh, quite easy and not, not that scary to sort of get all the way up again. Uh, and then I, then I start, um, I start working out like the small details. So like, uh, where should I put my, like, where should I put my left hand? Where should I put my right hand? Um, sort of like which, which places make, uh, make sense to grab and, and try and kind of get the, the speed going in, in all the different sections as well mm-hmm. uh, until I kind of have, um, until I have sort of all the sections worked out how I want them to be. Um, and then, and then I, I just start trying the whole thing by, uh, like doing it as, as fast as possible. And I mean, like that process can, can take like, I don't know, five minutes, depending, uh, like five minutes or, or an hour or something, depending on, on how technical, scary, or like tricky the, the climb is. Um, yeah. And then, and then I just, I try it, um, usually quite a lot of times because I'm always unhappy with something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end, either I, I sort of, I, I hit that, that run where I'm just like, okay, that was, that was really good. I don't think like realistically I'm going to be able to do any better than that. Uh, or I'll just be like, okay, I'm, I'm happy with that because I've, I've sometimes spent like hours just looking at one challenge and I've kind of gotten to a point in my life that, 
I don't know if it's in my life, but uh, with my training where I'm, I'm happy with it not being perfect and, and that's fine. Like I don't, I don't need to spend multiple hours doing something uh, unless I really enjoy it, uh, which I usually do, of course, but, but sometimes it's just like, all right, it's fine. Move on. Let's do something else. So when you are, do you kind of do sessions that are very specific to a sense and then maybe other general parkour sessions or is it all kind of mixed together? Um, I'd say it's uh, a bit of both actually. So sometimes we do sessions where like, all right, let's go out and find some ascents or we found this ascent. Let's go try this. Um, and other times it's just like, let's go out and train. And then we'll be like, Oh, that's a cool ascent. Let's try that. And then, Oh, that's a nice, uh, I guess more sort of like classic traditional parkour spot with, uh, with like precisions and, uh, lachets or yeah. something like that. Yeah. So it's, it's a bit of a mix sometimes, um, like with a, with a soul focus or, sometimes just doing sort of whatever kind of whatever feels good whatever's inspiring I'm, you know like i imagine that those some of those routes like that could be an entire training session a quite exhausting training session one one round through that is um you know satisfactory mm. to happen is is that kind of like the whole session just to get the one the one ascent that you want no, I don't think I've actually ever had uh, like any session where it's just been doing one thing. Uh, usually we, we end up doing more things um, because I mean, I think, I think like the most time I've spent doing one ascent has been like two hours or something like that. And usually my training sessions are longer than two hours. So, so I almost always end up doing doing more than just one thing um but i mean it could be that we do the ascent and then the rest of the training is a bit more chill because i mean it's a bit tiring but again usually ascents aren't they're not that taxing for the legs so uh, so i could do jumps and stuff afterwards um and and i don't know also they're not usually not that hard for the arms as well especially like i've been doing a lot of climbing so like as the ascents we do they're on pretty big holds compared to what I'm used to at the climbing gym. Yeah. So it's, it's not, it's not that bad. It's, it's more of the, the sort of like the technical difficulty of getting everything just to, to sort of match up perfectly, which is, is the, the challenging part, not the physical difficulty. So what does a normal training week look like for you? Do you have a fairly set schedule or kind of structure to your training or is it pretty open? At the moment, not really because like, uh work corona has just like fucked everything completely <laughs> um but I'm, I'm trying to sort of get uh get back to something that resembles normal but but i think like and it also depends on time of year as well um in the summer i'm a lot more outside in the winter i'm a lot more inside of course but like in in general um i i'd like my sort of week to have uh, i do usually like two uh strength training sessions um, either at the like the uh, gym fitness center or at the the climbing gym, they usually they have like a weights area as well. After that, um, and then I I like going climbing like twice a week ish, um, like at the climbing gym, yeah. and then I do parkour anywhere between like two to I don't know five times a week. Um, something like that. Um, but then, then sometimes like I have a job, which, which lasts a few days and then my week just gets completely, uh, like thrown out of, uh, of some sort of sync. What? 
Are you working in the stunt industry, or what kind of work do you do? No, I'm um, I'm I'm actually pretty much uh, doing like almost full time uh, parkour stuff at the moment, which is, I mean, when I say full time, I'm not working full time. It's just mainly what I'm doing. Uh, I'm definitely not making very much money with it at the moment, but uh, <laughs> hopefully that uh, that will change sometime in the future. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm doing I'm doing. Um, I've been doing a bit of work for a, a Danish uh, clothing company. Um, I'm also doing some like commercial videos for um, for some food stuff. Um, I've been doing a little bit of uh, of uh, commercial stuff, promotion stuff for a, uh, a Danish uh, animal rights organization. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's mainly like mainly filming filming jobs or like performance-ish stuff uh, and then ascending strength as well uh, but but that like that usually doesn't take like complete days uh, out of my schedule where I can't train besides so when you do strength training um, what kind of strength training exercises do you like to use um, I, f- I think I'm I mainly do sort of very classic ones uh, I've been doing quite a few squats deadlifts um, I like to get some um, Bulgarian split squats in every now and then. Uh, I've started doing quite a few uh, sissy squats, mm-hmm. really enjoying them. Uh, and then I also do like uh, weighted pull-ups, weighted dips. And that's like, that's that's what I like mostly do. Uh, sometimes I'll do something different, but but like that's, that's at least the sort of the bulk of my strength training. How long have you been strength training? Um, it's a good question. Probably like no six or seven years i think um like a bit on and off at the start but like relatively consistently for the past i'd say four years i think i remember when most people in the parkour community were were skeptical about the utilization of traditional strength and conditioning and everybody was, yeah me too you know, was doing the, uh, the the classic yamakaze conditioning stuff or not everybody but lots of people were were super into the the conditioning stuff. So it's always interesting to hear kind of how people found that and how, how it's impacted their performance. What did you notice? What do you notice that you gained from in- incorporating these kind of big lifts into your training? Um, with the leg stuff, I think I've noticed, I think like the most noticeable thing has been my um, like control in landings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I felt a lot more sort of stable while taking big drops. Yeah. Um, but also my jumping power uh, has increased a bit as well. Um, and like with, uh, with the upper body stuff, I've yeah noticed, a, like a, a big, uh, a big increase in, in like dino strength, climb ups. Um, yeah, that sort of stuff. Very cool. And, uh, and yeah. how about the, the transfer from the, the rock climbing to parkour in a more general sense? What do you notice there? Um, I mean, I, th- I think it, it sort of has a, like, I guess a bit of a crossover with the, with the strength training as well. Um, so I, I, I feel uh, stronger when I'm hanging on stuff like uh, arm jumps, cat leaps, um, dinos, uh, that sort of thing. But um, I, th- I think like the crossover for like jumping stuff is probably not not very big. Yeah. Um, and also obviously for ascents like that, I think that makes an absolutely gigantic difference. Yeah. Um, just sort of being able to to pull from from one hole to another like relatively easily compared to um, uh, like some of the other people that I, I sometimes train with that, that don't climb as much. Um, and, and also just com- comfortability 
holding uh like what i'd i'd still uh like see as a pretty big hold but like i don't know maybe like a like a, i don't know half an inch hold centimeter and a half i'm like oh this is gigantic and other people are like oh that's a pretty terrible hold <laughs> um so that that makes a difference as well also just for comfort when climbing up in the heights because i'm like oh this is this is great i'm fine with this spend a lot of time so it sounds like you're putting in quite a few hours of training at this stage, right? Like how long do you spend in a strength training session? Um, it differs, um, but I'd say probably somewhere between like one to two hours. And probably um, rock climbing two hours plus or one to two hours. Yeah. Yeah. Rock climbing's probably usually like four hours or something like that. Eight hours. Yeah, sometimes a bit less, sometimes a bit more. Eight hours of climbing a week, two to four hours of strength training a week, and then up to five days of parkour training where you're training over over two hours per day. So you're averaging yeah. somewhere like 25 hours of training a week. Uh, yeah, it's a, I'm probably like somewhere between between 10 and 25, maybe 30, like somewhere between 10 and 30 hours. Like it, it differs a lot from week to week, but, uh, but yeah, like yeah. quite a lot of training. That's, yeah, that's a lot. Um, so I imagine you interact with a number of other kind of professional parkour athletes in, in the spaces you're working with. How many athletes are, are, are training in your experience around those kind of hours? Um, that's actually a really good question. Um, I think, I think like a lot of the, like the, um, the, the sort of the top level parkour athletes, they probably train around, around the same time, I think um, plus minus a little bit. Um, but I, I don't know, I don't, I don't think it's, a like a, a, a super high amount of hours compared to, compared to other like top level parkour athletes. I, I think a lot about the comparison. Damn, I wish that sound would go away. It's just like, boom, it's just loud. Yeah. I heard it there as well, but not, not on my end. I don't think. I, I don't know where it's coming from. Um, it's not, it's not like in my house. No. So anyways, um, yeah, I mentioned the comparison of parkour to gymnastics and track as a kind of way to track our progress as a sport. And I think that we've achieved really something astonishing in a very short period of time. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting about it is that it seems like, you know, parkour athletes don't really tend to spend the hours that, uh, that, par that say, gym gymnasts do. Like gymnasts are spending, an elite gymnast is definitely a 40 hour a week sort of job. Um, it seems like a lot of people in parkour are able to achieve uh, comparable levels of skill with substantially less time investment, definitely over 10 hours, but not, I don't, I don't really think anyone's training over 40 hours consistently. No, I, I can't, I can't think of anyone like off the top of my head. Like the only two people that I think would like be close to that would be like uh, Ed Scott and Tim champion. Uh, and I don't think they're up there either. Yeah. Maybe uh, Daryl as well. Daryl Stingley. I think he, he trains quite a lot as well, but, but I, I don't think we're up at 40 hours. Yeah. So another thing that I find interesting or that I want to talk to you about is the, the culture of parkour in Denmark specifically, specifically, because I mean, it seems like you guys have the highest density of parkour parks in the world. Um, would you say that's accurate? Yeah, probably. What's the, what's the kind of social acceptance of parkour in Copenhagen? If you're around training in downtown Copenhagen, are you going to get moved on really quickly? Are you going to get pressured by the police or is it pretty open? We've, very rarely get moved on to be honest uh like pretty pretty much everyone is um is like uh, either like either they just kind of walk past and like don't really pay as much attention 
uh, we, we get lots of people though that, that like stop up and like, Oh, that's really cool. Nice work. And, uh, pretty much everyone knows what parkour is as well. So like, Oh, you training parkour. It's like, yeah, we're just training out enjoying ourselves. Um, yeah. So social acceptance in Denmark, I'd say is, is very high sort of in a, a general sense. Uh, I mean, sometimes we get someone that's, I guess, either super scared of what we're doing or just, yeah, I don't know, just gets really angry at us. Uh, but that's like really rare. Yeah. Um, like I remember that happening yeah, a lot more in, in, in other countries. So why do you think Denmark has, it seems like parkour has really become part of the sport culture of Denmark in a way that hasn't been accepted necessarily in other places. Um, why do you think it was? Um, it's a good question. I think, I think Danes are, are quite like open to like, to that sort of thing. Like, I mean, we've had a, like a, a really big sort of, uh, I guess, health fitness culture sort of pushing for, for the last while. So, so everyone's like, uh, like quite health conscious and, and really enjoying uh, like movement and they, I, th I think they, they don't see um, us as, as some like, just stupid kids uh, playing around uh, on the side of the on the side of the road, pretty much. Um, and and also, there's been quite a lot of money uh, from the government being pushed into creating the parkour parks, uh, those sort of spaces. Quite a lot of schools now they have it um, in their curriculum, actually. So they have yeah parkour as um, as part of their school. Why it's gotten to that? Um, I don't know, like a lot of the the sort of the old school uh, people here in Denmark, they've done a lot of work sort of pushing parkour, pushing a nice message as well. So that's definitely helped as well. Um, I think people are maybe just less scared of new things here than they are in some other places. Um, is, um, is it similar in the other Nordic countries? Like if you go to Sweden or Norway or Finland, is there a really high acceptance there as well? Do they also have a relative yeah, I mean, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's very similar there um, compared to here as well. Uh, one of the other things I was thinking about as well is we don't uh, we don't have that um, like liability issue, as I know you have in, in quite a lot of other countries. Like, I mean, if, if we fall down and break our leg here, like, I mean, it's it's our fault because we're idiots doing doing stupid shit. Not, not actually. I mean, we're usually pretty, uh, pretty careful doing and stuff, but like, I mean, we, we, it's, it's, it's a culture of like, if, if you fell down doing something and it's your own fault, then why, why would you sue someone else for your own, like for your own, uh, you also have uh what's it called? Like, uh, what, sorry. You have a socialized and actually pretty good medical care system there as well. Right? Yeah, that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't, we don't need to sue people because otherwise, I don't know, we can't afford to get our leg fixed or something like that, which I think also makes, um, makes life in general, just a lot, a lot easier and, and a lot less, um, I guess, fearful for, for what if something bad happens? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think it's interesting how it seems like the, the, I mean, obviously there's lots of other social factors, but kind of the early adopters within a community often set a tone. Like here in the Pacific Northwest, in North, in Washington, anyways, we also have really easy relationships with the authorities. Generally, like we don't get moved on very much, but we kind of like Tyson Checker, my old uh, kind of the co-founder of Parkour Visions. In like 2006, 2007, he organized a, a group to go speak to 
the um, Parks and Recreation Department at their like annual meeting and just tell them, hey, this is what parkour is. It's gonna be happening in your parks. And like, we wanna kind of be a liaison so you can understand it and make sure that it's safe. And we've just pretty much maintained a really good relationship with the parks ever since. Um, they, it took a long time to get them to kind of like officially approve of us, uh, approve mm -hmm. of us. like they turned a blind eye to us for a long time in a very like obvious way. <laughs> We put on yeah, okay. in 2012, I think, where we were at a Gasworks Park, which is a pretty famous spot in Seattle. And we actually broke one of the walls, like a wooden wall. And we, we called the parks department immediately and told them that it had happened. And we like offered to, to organize donations through our community to get the wall fixed. But they just fixed the wall and never contacted us back. And, you know, just like, they wouldn't yeah. give us a license to have vents, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't do anything about us. Like they were like hands off, which was very interesting. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. But that's also, that's also uh, really cool that, that that's actually sort of worked up to, to having a, a, a more acceptance um, of, of parkour. And, and as I mentioned as well, I think that's also one of the big things that's happened in, in Denmark. Like uh, we've had, we've had some guys just sort of really talking to schools, talking to, um, like all sorts of different institutions getting, getting parkour to like, this is parkour. Um, yeah. yeah. We're not trying to break your stuff. We're just training, having fun here. Yeah. You're moving on some pretty amazing architecture there. So you know, I can imagine people would be defensive of that. So it's, it's cool that they're not. I saw you climbed up on like a, a throne the other day. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we were lucky that we didn't get kicked off that, to be honest though. <laughs> <laughs> So the reason that we ended up ha jumping on a podcast was um, you and uh, Ties, uh, Ties, is that how it's pronounced? Ties. Ties. Um, yeah. wrote up an article uh, in response to um, to a video by Theo Tanchemek. Um, and, and just talk, and it was a pretty interesting article about kind of, you know, applying scientific thinking to parkour and what are the limitations of how we can approach things. So I was curious to, to kind of hear your background on, on, on your scientific thinking and, um, and, and how you see the interaction of science and parkour. Uh, so just a quick disclaimer, I'm going to say like Thais pretty much wrote that whole article. Uh, mm -hmm. so I don't want to take too much credit for that. Yeah. Um, but I think, I mean, my, my, I'm, uh, I'm a civil engineer. Okay. Um, so I've kind of, I think gotten a bit of my scientific thinking through that. Um, and then also like the past, the past few years now, I've, um, gotten quite interested in, uh, in philosophy as well. And I think that's had a big, um, I guess a, a big impact as well on my, critical thinking, um, sort of questioning things. And, and that I think has a nice crossover with, with the sort of, uh, scientific thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think like that's, that's probably my, uh, my basis for the, I guess, more scientific, um, way of thought. I've always been a very, a very direct person and, and, uh, I guess considered, like, I like thinking about what I say before I say things. Um, also I've, I always, <laughs> I'm very hesitant to talk about, um, about some things where I don't, I don't feel that I have that much knowledge because I don't like saying something that that's wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I've taken that as well, sort of like taken that, um, when talking to other people and, and just kind of like digested what they're saying. It's like, does this actually make sense? Uh, is there any sort of evidence behind this? 
which obviously there always there doesn't always have to be, but um, but then I think it's a nice idea to sort of to speak in more um, more. I'm not quite sure what the word is, but like um, terms like uh, I think this is how it is, or this this could be how it works. Um, I guess more more doubt in in what you're saying. Yeah. More um, humility, maybe. Humility is a good word. I mean, I think that that basically, you know, a lot of times, you know, I think Bayes, Bayesianism is an important thing for people to be aware of, right? Bayes' theorem is essentially that you have to consider the the prior probability of something once you have new evidence to, mm-hmm. to so you can't, you know, um, you don't, you don't, uh, a classic example is mammograms, right? So if you know that a, a mammogram- Is what, sorry? Mammograms, right? Oh, yeah. Right. You know that mammograms uh, detect 90, uh, cancer 90% of the time when cancer is present and you get a positive test on a mammogram. What does that mean? Like- Many doctors will say that there's an 80% chance that you have cancer, but that's actually the wrong conclusion to make because they're not considering the base rate of the likelihood that you'll have cancer before you get the mammogram. And once you consider that, the mammogram is actually not that informative. This is Bayes' theorem. So when you're when you're um, when you're when we're talking about new evidence of something, mm-hmm. we have to consider. Essentially, you should be thinking probabilistically. It's not a yes absolutely or no absolutely generally it's generally uh, yeah. this indicates x right yeah exactly and very often when we're looking at scientific evidence um if we're looking at the scientific evidence in regards to parkour for instance um say okay well what how confident can we be in this evidence how much how how mm-hmm. how quality is this evidence how how determinative is it and a lot of times that's what's missed right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think one of the sort of the, like maybe most important things I've learned as well, sort of regarding, uh, regarding studies is, um, like, even if you can look at a study and you can see like sort of the, the method that the people have used, the people, like the authors of the study, uh, have used, like they've kind of followed that method correctly. Um, if you, if you're not, uh, sort of like, yeah, what's it called? If you're not very um, into the scientific method, like you have, you have no idea if they've even used the right method. Like they might have done the method correctly, but maybe they haven't chosen the right method. Yeah. Um, and I think, like for the the, I guess more lay person, uh, which I still consider myself a part of, definitely. Like, um, it's it's super easy to to jump to conclusions. Just like you read a study and you're like, oh, this showed this, and you're like, okay, that's how it is. Not like Okay, so I mean that that study showed that. Sure, great. Sort of, how many people did they have in the study? Uh, did they use the right methodology? Um, like what? Hack. Sorry, what? Did they p hack the study? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I mean, there's there's so many things that that I think you have you have to have a like a really good grasp on uh, on academia, I guess, uh, doing doing studies that like to even be able to interpret the study. Mm-hmm. Um, like at least with, with sort of that much certainty as a lot of people do. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <absolutely>. Everyone <laughs> wants to be evidence-based. Um, everyone wants to be evidence-based, but, um, but actually there's a real art towards applying the evidence and being able to understand the evidence and then see if it, it fits the, the situation that you're trying to apply it to. Yeah, very, yeah, definitely. It's very easy to go into, um, you know, and it, you know, 
there's always this kind of argument around induction versus deduction in the scientific method, but mostly people induct a kind of intuitive gut feeling about what may be correct. And that's, that's, I think really where most science starts is you have a hunch and you try to try to prove it. Right. But yeah, yeah, definitely. Allows you to falsify. Right. And then you have to be willing to falsify. But what happens a lot with people as they start looking into, uh, into scientific research is that depending on the, 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 the area you're looking at, you can find evidence that supports whatever preconceived narrative that you look into. And, and it's very easy to sort of just narrative craft something that supports what mm. you are already believing, right? Yeah, definitely. So, like it's, it's super, super easy to, even unknowingly, but uh, to cherry pick data. Um, yes, yeah. And, uh, and even, even within the, um, well, I mentioned p-hacking. I don't know if the audience will understand that, but p-hacking is basically within science, um, there's this idea of statistical significance, which is represented by p. Um, and a p-value, I think 0 0.005 is considered statistically. 0.05, I think. 0.05, okay. 0.05, so that's, you know, um, the likelihood that it is a, is, a, is a false signal is supposed to be less than, you know, less than 0.05, right? Um, but what you can do is you can, you can set up a number of different uh, potential outcomes of the study and, or, or find outcomes of the study even after you've done the study and you just search for the one that reaches statistical significance, and then you publish that. Yeah, but that actually is not very uh, high-quality evidence. So, so, so we can we can bias our studies in, in lots of different ways. Um, so, for someone who's who you know who's who's doing parkour and is interested in in understanding the scientific evidence, um, what are some of the key takeaways that you've? you found from the evidence and, and how we can contribute intelligently right and carefully some of the key takeaways i think uh be more comfortable with doubting yourself That's a good one. i think is uh is a very important one um except that you're probably going to be wrong a lot of the time yeah almost all the time. um a bit. yeah yeah probably yeah <laughs> Um, and then also probably adapt your use of language, uh, with, with those things in mind. Um, I, th I think, uh, and this isn't actually something I've done myself, but I think, um, if, if you really want to get, get good at, um, like reading studies, um, kind of knowing what, what the studies, like, even if, like, if they're done correctly is learn, learn statistics. If, uh, if you really want to want to get into that, because, um, I've, I've seen a, a lot of studies pretty much just debunked by people that know like basic statistics or maybe not debunked, but, but at least sort of like questioned to a point where we like, yeah, okay, maybe, maybe this is a, a nice study that, uh, you can sort of draw the conclusion of, uh, this area needs further research. <laughs> 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 the conclusion of every study. Um, yeah. So, you know, most people are, are less interested in some sense in the evidence than in how, how do they train? How do they do? How, how do they get better at stuff? Mm -hmm. The question is how we, how we do that. And, you know, I think that this example of, of Theo Tanchimek's videos is actually an interesting one because what people don't realize is that having a narrative can be very compelling but that it can also be very oh, yeah. 
right? And then it Very what, sorry? Misleading. Right, yeah. yeah. And so if you propose that um, X is the reason that Y is happening, right? Um, mm -hmm. Then it gives someone something to hold on to, but it can be, you know, like, here's, here's actually a, a, an example that I think is a really useful one. Do you remember the days in the parkour community when you weren't supposed to let your knees pass your toes and you weren't supposed to be uh, below yeah. 90 degrees in a, yeah. in a landing? Yeah. So this was, this was, you know, theoretically evidence-based. There was lots of kind of sources that you could find supporting this idea, but it was never, you know, it was never really had, had been empirically tested in a in an mm. experimental design and anything that was high quality, high value study, it just sort of been accepted as a standard of, of the industry and then published repeatedly. So, you know, this was a big topic of debate on the parkour forums. The story mm -hmm. was, if you have knee pain, the reason you have knee pain is because you're, you know, you're quad dominant and you're descending too low in your landings and you're letting your knees track too far forward. Yep. So, I mean, I can tell you my, my story around that, but I'm, I'm curious to hear, like, how would you tell somebody to analyze that and think about that? And, you know, do you think those ideas hold any water at this stage? I think one of the sort of the main things that uh, that Tyson and I are are pushing through ascending strength, if you can call it that, um, is the um, uh, I guess sort of um, you don't even have to be able to sort of falsify claims because I mean the burden of truth or the burden of proof, sorry, is uh, is on the people making the claims. So just by asking asking questions like simple questions. Um, pretty much you can be like, okay, so you say this, what, what makes you say this? Um, and then you get sort of one level deeper and you're like, okay, so because of this, like, why, why, why do you say this? Or do you have any like hard evidence for this? Um, and I, th I think just being a little bit more critical and asking questions when someone comes and tells you something like, for example, your knee pain is caused because your ankles track, uh, sorry, your knees track over your, your toes you can be like, okay, why? Like, I mean, my, my knees do that every single day when I walk downstairs, like, wh like, why would that, why would that make it, um, a thing? Um, and then, I mean, maybe, maybe it is a thing. I mean, that's, that's not saying that, that it can't be a thing, but then you're kind of, you're, yeah, putting the burden of proof, uh, where it should be, I think. Um, and you can let, those people do the work for you, I guess, in a, in a sort of sense of the way. Um, I, I don't personally think it holds any water. Um, do you think there's any evidence that even um, not bottoming out is important as part of, uh, of your landing strategy? I am not sure, actually. That's not something that I've uh, spent a lot of time digging into. But uh, I, I don't know, like just uh, intuitively, probably not. Okay. So, uh, but don't definitely don't take uh, don't hold me up on that. So when you think about making your landings better, what are what are what are you uh, paying attention to? Um, I think it's it's mostly a, a feelings based thing, to be honest. Um, when I'm I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about landing, so I feel in control. Um, I feel it's it's like a, a stable landing. Um, and, and depending on how big the jump is, what kind of like drop we're taking, I'll uh, adjust my landing to, to sort of suit the, the needs of the situation. So some, some landings I'll pretty much like bottom out completely because it's a super heavy drop. 
um, and other landings I'll land like not straight legged, but without the, it's without very much uh, bending in my legs at all. And it's like doing one thing or the other is not something that I sort of spend a lot of uh, time thinking about. Actually, I, I usually go by a, like a, a feelings based approach of what actually feels like a good landing. And that, I mean, is a super vague thing I know, but yeah, I mean, sometimes that's the right answer, right? Sometimes certain people are about when you say this yeah. is the absolutely correct way to land. We don't have good evidence that that's the correct way to land. Um, we might be misguiding people. Um, so there's a couple concepts that I like. One is uh, just a nocebo effect, right? The nocebo effect is the opposite mm-hmm. of the nocebo effect. When you, when you tell somebody, yeah. you give them a, a pill, they get better whether the pill has medicine or not, right? Yeah, exactly. The intervention has happened can have a positive yeah. The opposite of that, the nocebo effect is that when you tell someone some something is bad for them. Yeah, exactly. It's the, worse for them, right? They'll, you're, yeah. If someone tells you that your knees will hurt if you let your knees track over your toes, that's actually an independent factor in making it hurt. Yeah. When we create all these, you know, all these stories about, okay, if you, if you stand with your hip off to one side, you're going to be creating a habitual distortion of your spine that's going to make it harder for you to land because your feet are going to slip. Mm-hmm. Like um, we're, we're potentially pathologizing perfectly normal behavior and giving people uh, stories about their pain that might actually be very self-limiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think as well, I was just going to say sort of regarding the, the whole, uh, the narrative thing, um, like the, I guess getting an easy answer is, is like, it's such a, I think a human thing to want that. So, so if, if someone comes and tells you, Oh, all your problems are caused by this, you'll just like, you kind of a lot easier. It's a lot easier to just latch onto because you're like, Oh, that's great. If I just fix this, then all my problems will go away instead of someone saying like, yeah, it could be this could be that we're not actually sort of really sure, uh, why it is. Um, which is, is probably also not the the best way of, of helping someone because of, uh, placebo as well. But, but just that, that sort of, um, giving people uh, a very easy, solution to latch onto is just like it feeds right into people's fears maybe i'm not sure if uh, if that's kind of the right word but well i think it feeds into our desire for for clarity and patterns right yeah right and and how you just you orient around narratives and having a narrative that is that is coherent is is a des- is a desire in itself that we have so mm-hmm. if you have an injury and you don't understand it having something that it helps you feel like you understand it is is it's hard to let go of actually and i found this a lot like you know the, the research on back pain from my understanding is that the most back pain is um doesn't have a clear mechanical cause mm-hmm. but you talk to lots of people who have back pain and they're going to tell you that uh, you know, I slept a disc or, you know, I have a degenerative disc disease or I, you know, my psoas are too tight and I just need to keep stretching them or blah, blah, blah. They'll have a story, mm-hmm. a mechanical story. Um, yeah. And when I explain that, like, there is there is a psychological component or a neurological component, you know, it could be just um, excitation of this neural pathway that's associated with pain that has mm-hmm. moved into your body. And there might be another approach to just calming your body down or bringing it's very hard for people to accept that because having this clear mechanical thing, even if it's not helping them and they've been in pain for years and it, and it hasn't, you know, no amount of chiropractic has fixed it for them. Yeah. At least the story makes sense to them. Yeah. 
Exactly. That's, that's actually like a, a huge thing. Uh, my girlfriend's a physiotherapist and she uh, uh, previously worked a lot with uh, chronic pain patients. Mm-hmm. And, and like, I, th- I think one of the biggest hurdles was getting people to let go of, of that story of like, I'm a chronic pain patient. So like, it's, it's never going to get better. And it's like, if, even if it's like a shitty life, like just the fact that they kind of know what's going to happen. Like, Oh, if I do this, my back's going to hurt. Uh, and it's going to keep doing that. It gives some sort of like, uh, some sort of security, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is, is hard to let go of for some reason. Um, yeah, because ha- having things make sense is, is important, right? It's independently important, like, you know, maybe above being out of pain. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so we have, um, we talked about the nocebo. The other one that I, I love is, uh, is what, sorry? Sorry, it's a concept that I get from, uh, from Nassim Taleb. Uh, it talks about iatrogenics, right? Which is the idea that, that we need to consider much more carefully the potential damage that an intervention causes, right? You can, you can, you can say, okay, we gave this medicine to people and we study that they got, we studied the ways in which they improved and that'll tell us something. But if we don't study the ways in which they potentially are damaged by it, mm-hmm. then we're missing a lot of the picture. And, you know, the history of, of Western medicine um, is that up until quite recently, the iatrogenic effects were were much larger than vice versa, right? All of the bleeding and, um, you know, <laughs> surgery without washing your hands. Yeah. Probably killing more people <laughs> than just not going to the doctor would have. Yeah. So we have, uh, so we, we have to take, take this into account. I actually think this is a really important sort of principle for us as coaches as well. Like one of my key takeaways from sort of studying the the motor learning research and comparing parkour to gymnastics and track and field is this idea that parkour athletes have achieved, um, I would say parkour athletes have achieved parity in development uh, of athleticism to what we see within gymnastics and, and track and field. And um, this is despite not having, uh, most, most athletes are self-taught, they don't have a uh, established coaching. Um, they have very little financial incentive, as you said, uh, you don't make a lot of money. Yeah. Like how, how many guys do you think make good money doing parkour in the world? Um, not, not many. Like, like a proper, yeah, I, I'd say like less than a hundred. Less than a hundred. Um, you think there's anybody in parkour who makes over a million dollars from doing parkour? Like a year? Yeah. I don't know. Probably some of the, maybe, maybe if anyone, some of the Red Bull sponsored athletes could be sort of, but probably, I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> but yeah, I'm just no. saying there's no financial incentive to do parkour, right? There's there's no. so so minimal compared to other sports. Yeah, I mean if 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 financial incentive is your reason to for doing something, like parkour is definitely not the right uh right thing to go for. So yeah, so we have low financial incentives. I think it's still a pretty small community, especially when you consider like if, if the best athletes in the in the in the world right now started training on average 10 years ago or eight years ago the population of athletes eight years ago was pretty small. 10 years ago was pretty small. So small, small scale group. Mostly they started later in life. Like you don't meet many elite parkour athletes who started when they were five years old. Um, no, not yet. I'm, I'm sure that's going to come like pretty right. soon, but I was talking, but I, yeah, I, not, I interviewed Chris and um, Damien DeVoe uh, from world chase tag uh, yesterday. And uh-huh. I have no idea that Orlando from team fat is Christian's son. Oh, I didn't know that either. Huh. So there's that example. But I think that was like, I think it was 11 when, when yeah. all this was starting. Um, yeah. Um, 
I have a son. He's six years old. He's pretty, pretty amazing athlete, actually. We'll see. Nice. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not really a thing. So, so the fact that there is this extraordinary parity that's, that's been achieved to me is actually an indication that a lot of our traditional ways of educating and pe people in movement might actually be inhibiting their development as much as it is allowing their development. And one of the, 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 um, the other sort of points that I make in this argument is in general, what I found is that the best athletes within parkour communities tend to be athletes who are self-taught, not athletes who, who show up for classes. Like if you go to a parkour gym, the athletes who go to the gym are better than the athletes who go to coaches. Now there's a huge, um, there's a huge uh, selection bias problem in that argument, which is, are they better because they didn't show up for the classes? Or are they better because when you're in, when you're naturally more talented, there's less drive to go get instruction. But um, yeah, that's, that's true. It, it could also just be because like those people that like are uh, naturally more talented and, and maybe have, uh, or maybe not naturally more talented, but like have a drive to train, they, they want to go training like all the time and they don't just want to sort of uh, limit themselves to like okay. one or two classes a week. Yeah. And then, then their, 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 um, their appetite outstrips the capacity of the class. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. Um, but you can, you can, you can use it as a prior, right. Without establishing to what degree it, it, it's true. And, and the indication to me is that as coaches, we should consider that, the way that we intervene in an athlete's training has as much potential to inhibit their development as to uh, assist their development. And that's a very different attitude for a coach, right? So I think that coaches like doctors should start with the attitude of first do no harm mm -hmm. and not assume that just because this is the way that it's been passed down or because you can see a change that you think is going to make the athlete better, mm -hmm. that it actually will without, you know, looking for some sort of empirical evidence that it's improving the athlete or getting yeah, yeah. communication with the athlete. Yeah. Because I mean, uh, statistically humans are pretty damn terrible at seeing, uh, like seeing patterns, uh, or like seeing correct patterns, um, and actually sort of being able to judge things, um, just by perception alone. Yeah. We're, we're, we're amazing at seeing patterns in specific contexts and really bad at seeing patterns in, in other contexts because we evolved to solve a, a specific set of problems, right? Mm -hmm. And we have yeah. this kind of specific um, ability to solve, you know, finding specific patterns, but, um, but we're trying to exact it for all these other purposes that it's not necessarily well adapted to. Yeah. So um, you mentioned that, you, uh, that you've gotten really into philosophy and, and I sort of noticed that you're you're coming from maybe more of a materialist philosophical position. I was, I was curious how, how you, your interest in philosophy developed and how it interacts with this idea of parkour philosophy. Um, my interest in philosophy uh, came about through veganism, actually. Um, I started, um, started uh, I think, listening to like a lot of, um, a lot of uh, vegan philosophers. And then I, I kind of just found out that I had absolutely no idea like what a lot of uh, a lot of people were saying so I, I i started reading up um on more stuff and listening to more people um and i mean i st i still uh struggle a lot of the time to understand what they're saying because philosophy is so damn hard yeah um, <laughs> Believe me, i know yeah, yeah. um 
so that's that's pretty much where it started um and then going more sort of uh parkour philosophical i guess um I guess it, it sort of more just plays uh, a, like it plays into it sort of through a, a more um, critical way of, of going about things, um, asking more questions and being less uh, less certain about about most things actually. Um, I, th- I think being at least being sort of more open to, to things not being not being as uh, as I've been told pretty much like my whole life. Um, and also not necessarily being as, um, as I feel or think they are. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, One thing that I find interesting is I think that science, you know, and philosophy as well can be very good at teaching someone doubt, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Critical thinking, um, you know, I try to balance, uh, uh, active open-mindedness with critical thinking, right? You want to actively be able to not close down um, ideas as they're introduced to you, but then you also want to make sure that you are applying some sort of critical discrimination to ideas, and, and you're trying to, to balance those two, those two, those two things. Um, Definitely. But I wonder sometimes if, like, as an a- it's like as an athlete, faith is actually really valuable, right? I, I noticed that a lot of elite athletes are are quite religious, quite superstitious, and it's like I don't want to. It's like when I'm standing at a jump, I have to, that potentially is dangerous to me. I have to, at some point, place faith in my, ability. I have to trust in my ability to make that jump, right? Like mm-hmm. considering, you know, that there is some, some tail end uh, of, of probability that I might fail is something that I have to actually close my mind to, right? I have to get rid of yeah. that in order to achieve what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious how you balance that desire to sort of, um, build this uh, pr- maybe probabilistic way of approaching the world with acting in the world where you must assume faith in things. Um, to be completely honest, that's not really anything that I've thought uh, thought that much about. Really, um, I I don't think I see them as um, as as a contradiction um, in in my way of of living. Um, I don't know. I think that's something I'd need to think a little bit more about to give uh, any sort of interesting answer. Okay. Yeah. Were you interested in the idea of parkour philosophy when you got in, in, uh, involved in parkour? No, not at all. Not at all. Did you ever go back to being interested in it? Or has your philosophy sort of completely been independent of your parkour development? Um, I, I'd say it's mostly been independent of, uh, of my parkour development. Um, yeah, I've... I've I don't know. It's, it's, I think when, when I do parkour, it's, it's much more of a, like a feelings based thing. And, and I'm like, of course I'm uh, logical as well about, about things. Um, Just like breaking jumps and that sort of thing. But, but as you say, it is like, it's a feelings faith based uh, approach a lot of, a lot of the time uh, when you're doing, when you're doing a big jump. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't really think I uh, have a very uh, good answer for you there. Okay, so different line of questioning. I'm just curious about this. I'm uh, so my understanding is that the veganism is often uh, kind of oriented around moral utilitarianism. Is that correct? Um, not necessarily. Not necessarily. So, what is the philosophy 
within veganism that, that kind of caught your attention? Where did it lead you to? Um, well, I think the, the philosophy part of it came, came afterwards. Um, so uh, to, to start off with me, it was, uh, it was uh, I, I guess, a, a feelings-based uh, thing that I, I didn't think what we're doing was fair and I didn't really want to sort of, I didn't want to partake in that, um, in that industry, I guess. Um, and then, and then the, the philosophical thinkings came, um, came more afterwards when I, I tried, um, like I'd had conversations with people and, and I couldn't really sort of express my, uh, like my reasoning for, for doing a lot of things. Um, so, so it, my, my interest came, came from, from that way, trying to sort of to ground my, uh, ground my choices or sort of ground my, um, feelings for, for that, um, give me some way to at least to explain why I'm doing what I'm doing. Uh, that's not just because I feel like it. Like, um, I mean, who are the, who are the philosophers that you started um, paying attention to? Um, so I read, uh, a book by Peter Singer, uh, who's, very, very much a utilitarian. <laughs> I can say when I think moral, when I think vegan philosophy, I think Peter Singer and moral utilitarianism. Yeah, exactly. Um, I've also actually one of the first books I read was um, by um, uh, someone called uh, Christine Korsgaard, um, who is a, a deontologist. Okay. Um, and I think there's. there's I think probably most people are probably utilitarian, but there's also quite a lot of, uh, a lot of most deontologists, uh, most, yeah, sorry, most, um, yeah, yeah, probably most vegan people are utilitarian. There's quite a lot of, uh, deontologists. Um, personally, i I think I'm somewhere uh, in between if, if that makes sense. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm in between. I, I think, I mean, I'm not sure that, that they're exhaustive, but I think that deontological moral reasoning is the, the appropriate way to reason in, um, in intimate relationships and small mm -hmm. community. And that when we have to look at large scale problems, then we have to switch towards a more of a utilitarian moral framework. They don't more deontology doesn't scale all the way up. Um, no. and, uh, and utilitarianism doesn't scale all the way down. Yeah, I think that uh, sort of uh, roughly uh, translates quite well for me. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of anything called threshold deontology. I'm not aware of that yet, but no, we'll have a look at it if you if that's interesting. Um, yeah, and then I've also just uh, I've watched a lot of uh, I guess YouTube philosophy as well, um, which is some of it's good, some of it's not so good, um, but still still interesting as well. Um, yeah, I don't remember what you asked me. No, who I started listening or reading. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's what you are getting yourself into. Yeah. Uh, what, sorry. I was just asking who, who the thinker is, what, what philosophical traditions and schools you are, you are, you're paying attention to. Yeah. Um, I think, I think we covered that sort of reasonably. We'll, we'll come kind of towards the end of our, of our time to chat today. So I was curious to ask you, like, where do you think kind of parkour is going and where, and if anything, is there a direction you'd like to see it go? Um, I think parkour is going towards, um, I mean, parkour competitions are becoming very much a thing. Yeah. Um, and I think parkour is going probably uh, that way as well. And maybe the sort of the same way as uh, skating or snowboarding mm -hmm. uh, in some sort of way. Um, 
I'm actually I'm super interested to see where parkour is 30 years from now and, and how it looks. Um, because I mean, just if, you, I mean, if you look at it from like now and then 10 years ago, it's, it's a completely different place. Yeah. I think, um, where I want it to go. I'm not sure if I, if I have any sort of, um, actual, um, like specific direction I, I want it to go. I just, I hope people, people keep doing it for, um, for, for fun, I guess. And it, and it doesn't become, uh, I know, I guess something too serious, which is not to say that that's a bad thing for someone that wants to like, let's say just do competitions. Um, yeah. but, but I feel that, uh, a lot of the time, some people can, can kind of lose the the playfulness and the fun, which is, which is one of the things I fell in love with, uh, when it, when it comes to the competitive side of things. Um, even though I actually, I enjoy competition, uh, and competitions as well, but, uh, I think people just, they have to maybe, think to themselves about the sort of positives and the negatives about, about pretty much anything they do. Right. But, um, especially regarding, regarding that. Um, yeah, no, I hope, I hope parkour can, can help a lot of people in, uh, I guess, in, um, I can't remember the English word for it. Um, I guess the sort of the way they, they have evolve or they, that's not the right word. I guess just sort of the way they go about their, their sort of, uh, day-to-day lives um which is is maybe like the super corny thing like uh parkour has helped me overcome uh obstacles in my life um but i think i think it's it's a really nice tool that can help you maybe sort of see things um in a little bit more of a like a realistic perspective um this is like one of my good friends said that uh so like he can stand up and 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 like do a, a huge jump uh, why why can't he stand in front of a class and and talk about some report he's written or something like that? Um, which I think that kind of makes in some ways a lot of sense to me, uh, even though it's something completely different. So it's probably not like completely transferable. But oh yeah, I mean, what you're describing really is sounds a lot like what we do with evolving play, right? That's that's the basic idea is how do we how do we utilize um, parkour and then let's say how do you utilize parkour as a way to have more morning more meaningful life and to develop your character such that mm-hmm. the physical practice transfers effectively into these other realms and then yeah. how do we and then if if the goal is actually the transfer is parkour actually the right tool at a specific time or are there other tools that we need to put it in relationship to and so then there's the development of an ecology of practices for self self development self cultivation self transcendence mm-hmm. that's that's essentially the idea that's that's also where i would like to see parkour go but i think there's a a role for competition within that and i i hope that parkour as it develops um develops sort of like rock climbing where the competition formats don't overtake the activity itself and they remain mm-hmm. sort of like you can be a climber you you climb and you and you speed climb but you still climb you don't only speed climb, right? Mm-hmm. Bouldering competitions, but you, you still do other types of, of climbing. And I do think there's some degree of, you know, of, of specialization to the point where people are losing that in rock climbing, from what I understand. Um, yeah. It's still, it's still a broad activity that most people participate in at the level of, of breadth, not at the level of, 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 uh, of specialization. I think it, 
I can see a future where like, you know, some people are speed competitors at MAPC and some people are really into a world chase tag and some people are into the style Red Bull argument and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and then you also have athletes cross over and go from one to the other. They might be speed athletes for a while and then go to world chase tag for a while. Um, mm-hmm. I think that'd be a, a good way for it to develop. And I think it'd be, I would like to see a future where parkour athletes can actually make money doing it. Um, yes. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, uh, that would be like a really big step for, for parkour as well. Um, like actually people being able to see a future in it. Yeah. Yeah. It's- Cause I mean, I've seen, I've seen a lot of people who have like done parkour, like been really good at it, uh, really enjoyed it. And then they've gotten a full-time job and parkour has just kind of like gone away a little bit uh, at a time. Yeah. It seems to me that the community kind of hit a real peak around 2013 and that it's sort of receded a little bit and it's still developing, but it hasn't kind of got the momentum that it had leading up into that Mm -hmm. period of time um, for a variety of reasons. I think Instagram and, uh, and Facebook um, and YouTube not liking parkour anymore very much um, has been a lot less friendly than early YouTube and, uh, and the online forum mm-hmm. as a way to kind of grow the community and culture. Um, yeah. But I think also like, you know, for a lot of athletes who got into it as it was coming up, there was probably the sense that, you know, because it's growing so fast right around the, the corner is the, the era in which we can be sponsored like snowboarding athletes and skateboarding athletes and skiing athletes. And that just mm-hmm. didn't happen. And I think it's because parkour doesn't involve any equipment, right? Is what, sorry? It doesn't involve any equipment. It's a lot harder to mm. sell a product to the parkour yeah. audience than to other audience. So the value of your skills to a brand is substantially less than a comparably trained skier because you know, a $700 pair of skis that's associated with an elite skier can move a lot of product. Um, yeah. But, you know. Yeah. That's actually a good point. Yeah. That's not something I thought that much about. Like, I guess shoes are probably like the only thing we have. And even then, like, I mean, you can pretty much use whatever shoes you want, right? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make as big a difference for sure, right? No. Like, you know, the, the difference in performance between like a, a between a, a, really nice the design pair of skis and a uh, entry level pair of skis mm-hmm. is a lot more than between you know a midline sneaker and a world's best parkour design sneaker right? it's probably not nearly the same level. yeah i think i'd, I'd uh, intuitively agree with you on that yeah. so we should do a study on it yeah that'd be fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, well, this is awesome, Oliver. Thanks for, for giving me your time. Um, I know you're you're not uh, you don't have a lot to sell, uh, but uh, but if people want to follow you uh, online, Instagram, anywhere else they should follow you, your YouTube channel. Uh, no, my YouTube channel is pretty much dead. Um, I don't post that much on that anymore. Pretty much Instagram. I have a TikTok as well. You can follow me there if you want. But yeah, we'll we'll put the links in the in the episode description. And uh, thank you very much for your time. Cool. Yeah, thank you. It was really nice. Hey, you've reached the end of another Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, if you want to be involved in the conversation, please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month, question and answers with me once a month, and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast, as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums. If you're interested in that, make sure to check out the link below, get signed up, and join a part of our membership community. 
If you can't join our membership community right now, it's still always helpful if you can like, share, and subscribe, and even hit that bell and give notifications for upcoming Evolve Move Play podcasts. But adios for now, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, guys.